If you have your Bibles, please turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, and I'll be reading from verses 1 through 12. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And if you're there and you're able, please stand for, in reverence, the, God, uh, the reading of God's word. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is God's word. Amen. Please be seated. I think it was about a month ago when during my regular work hours here at the office, I had this absolute need and desire for a Diet Coke. I was suffering from a post-lunch food coma and crash, and I was, I was desperate. I'm not really a coffee drinker because it often makes me pretty jittery, so I'm, I'm a Diet Coke aficionado, and I needed it pronto. But of course, the school's here and in operation. I thought to myself, well, I'm sure there are vending machines here. I think I've seen one or two, so I'm going to go and try to get a Diet Coke. I had my credit card ready, and the person at the front desk, I won't say her name to protect the innocent, told me where all the machines were uh, along the school. So I go to the closest one, and for some reason, the the machine wouldn't accept my credit card. So I go back and ask, well, where are the others? And I go on this unnecessary mission to find all the vending machines on the school grounds, but none of them would take either of my credit cards for some weird reason. And I want to file a formal complaint about that. (laughs) So she finally said, well, Robin, I can easily give you a couple of dollars so you can buy one. It's not a big deal. And I said, no. I'm determined to to solve this on my own. And after more failures, she said, I think I have some Coke Zero in the fridge. And some of you guys who love Diet Coke, uh, that that is something you don't say to someone who loves Diet Coke. They're they're not the same thing. But of course, I didn't want to bother her. And I I said, thank you, uh, but um, I will pass. 
And I have to admit, sometimes with Diet Coke, I can get pretty obsessive uh, until I find some. And so I'm just thinking right now, so after that day, I always have a 12-pack in my car just in case. And now I'm kind of panicking because I'm just realizing that I don't have that there uh, for this week. So perhaps I'll be getting some soon. Diet Coke is something I perpetually crave. What is the one thing you perpetually, routinely crave after? To crave something simply means, quote, to desire after something persistently. For me, it's Diet Coke. For you, it could be something entirely different. But we all have our cravings, don't we? Now, obviously, people don't just crave after drink or after their favorite food. People crave money. People crave after being around people, community, a sense of belonging. People crave attention. People crave beauty, status, security, feeling safe. People crave leisure and vacation. Now, all these things are pretty normal in today's societal parameters. Nothing new here. But what are believers supposed to crave after? As, as, the, as the ESV translates this in verse 2, longs for. What are believers called to long after? Desire with persistence and crave. If you look at your Bibles in verse 2, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. We are to long for, as believers, and crave after spiritual milk. One author said the Greek word here for long for pictures a, quote, relentless, continual craving. So if you're following from the earlier introduction, crave or long for is not simply, uh, you know, I guess I'll go to Panera Bread today. They offer some nutrients there, I guess. That's not craving after, longing after something. No, craving is an intense desire, a relentless desiring. This type of biblical craving is meant to have the meaning of being insatiable. You keep going back for more and more and more. Now, before we go on tying this all into the overall passage, let's back up for a minute about where we are in the letter. Peter, the apostle, has already reminded the spread out, the dispersed Christians in Asia Minor, which is a huge region in the ancient context, it's modern day Turkey. Peter was reminding all these scattered believers the truths and promises of God in the gospel. That we are, and as I shared last week, the indicative, the, the the verbs that speak to a finished truth, that we are an elect people of God because of the finished redeeming work of Jesus Christ on our behalf who, as Peter said, shed his precious blood for our forgiveness and salvation. He also said that God has granted us to be born again through the Spirit to a living hope and an eternal inheritance that will never spoil or go away and that God will keep this in heaven for us and will be preserved also until we see Christ on that day to see that inheritance. Peter also reminded us that our spiritual homeland is not here. Our citizenship is not on earth but in heaven and whose souls have been purified because of the truth in Jesus Christ. And because of all those grace-filled finished acts of God on our behalf, 
Peter throws in there, and especially today, we are to live in a different way. We are to live in the new way. And that segues into our first heading, the first of three for today's passage. Number one, a new life, a new longing, verses one through three. A new life and a new longing. And that's precisely why he begins chapter two with the word so, or in other translations, therefore. Therefore, or so, because everything Peter just mentioned before, you were born again because of all that, put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. R.C. Sproul comments and says, all malice, that phrasing there is there because that's the first thing Christians must put away. Malice is an inward attitude to harm or injure someone else. Obviously, that's the opposite of loving neighbor. Malice in the heart comes before striking someone with a fist or spreading slanderous false rumors about someone. Malice is what motivates. Malice leads to the next word, deceit. Deceit being defined as intentional hiding or distorting of truth. Then we have hypocrisy from the ancient context of play acting or putting up a facade, playing up to a false presentation of oneself. You know, I read about a study that showed the number one reason why non-Christians don't like Christianity is because of rampant hypocrisy in the church. The same, they think the same people that profess Jesus as Lord and Savior can be the most abhorrent and vile-filled people outside of Sunday service. A lot of that is probably true. But as one theologian points out, that's antithetical to how believers are pictured and marked out in the New Testament. True believers are marked by people who admit our sin and live a life of repentance in that regard, who don't claim that they're sinless, 1 John 1 says, while standing in self-righteous judgment of others. That's hypocrisy, and that's not the mark of a genuine believer in the, in the scriptures. R.C. Sproul continues and says, the church is the only institution where being a sinner or labeled a sinner is mandatory for membership. But hypocrisy is saying everyone out there is a sinner and we're not. We are righteous and you're not. Peter says we are to put that away. Then to the next pair, envy and slander. If we are truly elect exiles, there is no need to envy what the world has to offer or to resent what the world seems to have that you don't. The same holds true for your attitude towards one another in our church. We are not to envy nor slander. We are to put that attitude away, to mortify that by the work and aid of the Holy Spirit. Slander is to falsely accuse another, to injure and bring someone down. Interestingly enough, the word for the devil, diabolos, means slanderer. Are we to imitate our enemy or are we to imitate Christ? And so Peter is saying, put this away. You are a new creation, one who has been born again. Now, going back to that imperative, that biblical command to put away, put away all malice and so forth, that command, scholars note that the image here is not to temporarily discard something for later use, 
but to take that outer garment and put that away in the closet for good. I was thinking about this. We all have a part of our closet, and I was thinking about this for myself, where we store clothes that we'll never wear again. I'm not sure why we keep them there, but they're there. Some of you maybe have many closets full of these items. But the attitude and command is to put away what described us before Jesus Christ and salvation, to say there's no room for this anymore. When my sister has four children, wonderful children, and as they were growing up, you know, loved to play with them and all their, their toys, and, but always I was that strict uncle. My favorite part was to clean up and to put everything back into its appropriate bins. I'm not good with chaos, and so yes, we can make a mess of the basement, but uncle now says it's time to clean up, we gotta wash up and go eat, so I want every last Lego <laughs> to be put in the appropriate bin. But what I would reassure the children is that after dinner, maybe we can go back and play with them again. But that's not what Peter is saying here. That's not his intention. That's not the attitude and posture for a Christian, as a newborn Christian, a born again Christian. If you were born again last week, or if you've been a believer for 40 or 50 years, the intention is to put away for good. Much like Paul says in Colossians 3, we are to throw off the old, put to death, he says. That's mortification through sanctification. Just fancy words of saying we die to sin more and more. We are enabled to by the Spirit of God. That's sanctification. We are being conformed in the whole man after the image of God, the power of the Spirit in us. And then he says in Colossians 3, and now put on the new. And that is all the attributes and qualities of Jesus Christ. And one of the practical and spiritual ways to do this as we tie this back to our introduction, is to crave, is to long after the pure spiritual milk in verse 2. We are to crave the pure spiritual milk. Now, the NIV, the ESV essentially have the same wording for the phrase there. But the New American Standard, a more, I guess you could say, literal translation, definitely more than the NIV, has the, the phrasing there, long for the pure milk of the word. Long for the pure milk of the word. Why do some translations have spiritual milk and others have milk of the word? Well, the Greek here, as one scholar points out, is logikon. The word can be translated as spiritual, but its root word is tied in with logos, which can be translated as word or speech. Rational speech or word is another way to translate its broader meaning, and of course, that's where we get the English word logic from. But here, Peter is talking about the pure spiritual word of God that every believer needs. So spiritual milk, in its rendering, is synonymous with milk of the word of God. Now, some of you might be already be thinking about other passages where I, I thought there's another passage where the, the New Testament authors use milk as kind of a negative term, as in you should be eating solid food now, but you're still only on milk, denoting their spiritual immaturity. But this is just an example that you could use different words in different ways and contexts. Because here in 1 Peter 2, milk, pure spiritual milk of the word of God, is obviously meant in a very positive way. 
And not because these Christians are either brand new Christians or not. As historians say, you can't really say that about these uh, spread out Christians. That's not, and that's not Peter's point. The point is, as Thomas Schreiner points out, is that milk then becomes the substance of life for any Christian at any juncture of their life. Milk becomes a substance of life comprising that which all Christians need to, to progress in their spiritual lives. Now, Peter uses the word pure because God's word, our spiritual milk, is unadulterated and it's not tainted in any way. It's not in line with any of the false teachings that, of course, becomes rampant in the early church and already at this point it has. But the word of God is pure. Now, one theologian points out that there was a point in Peter using the word milk. Milk not just for any person, but for newborn babies. Newborns crave milk. They long for it, more than I'll ever long for Diet Coke. They, they go after milk without any hesitation. And he goes on to say that milk not only quenches their thirst and hunger, but it nourishes them. There are nutrients in the milk that help babies grow, to help the baby to fight illness, to build up their immunity, and so on. And so Peter realizes that for born-again believers, whether they're believers a month or for 50 years, milk is essential for spiritual growth. Try feeding something other than milk to a newborn. See what happens. They only want their mother's milk. It's a singular devotion to it. And oh, if we would pray, if we would only pray for that same relentless desire for God's word instead of just a, I'm a Christian, so shouldn't I be reading God's word more? But God, give me this insatiable desire for the milk of the word of God. And the word of God that not only quenches thirst and hunger, but protects us from evil, builds up our spiritual stability, nourishes our souls, wakes us up if we are straying, keeps us going steady on the right path, helps us to strengthen our faith and spiritually grow as an ordinary means of grace. Because we are called as an imperative to desire resolutely the word of God as newborns and will grow up into salvation as verse two says and concludes there, meaning growing up in our understanding of our salvation, but also proving that the future culmination of our salvation is proven by the genuine longing for God and his word. Meaning if there is no desire for God's word in your life until that day where you die, why should we have any confidence that something has changed in our hearts in being saved? And that naturally leads to the logic in verse three. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, if indeed you have learned how the Lord is gracious and kind towards you in the gospel, then you will, of course, long for more and more milk and throw off the old patterns and garments of your old self. Now look at that last word there, the Lord is good, in verse 3. That word translated from the Greek can be misleading if you're not careful. The word has its origin in the sense of graciousness and kindness or goodness, that you have tasted that the Lord is kind. You have tasted that the Lord is gracious, not as in good as maybe in modern day vernacular we would say yummy or tasty in that sense, 
but a quality of the attribute of Christ and his gospel word, the graciousness of the Lord, the kindness of God. Of course, this is quoting Psalm 34, 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Not that God has a flavor profile in himself, but these writers are using this as a metaphor. We have tasted the sweetness of the gospel, his kindness and graciousness towards you, the sinner who is now saved. That's what we're tasting, brothers and sisters. Peter resonates with this, of course. He has tasted the kindness of God. He has tasted what reconciliation and forgiveness and redemption is in regards to his Savior. But as Peter reminded us in, verse, in chapter 1, verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. Because you might be saying, well, that was Peter, and he had these wonderful experiences, and, and, and yes, he sinned, but he was restored, and he saw the resurrected Jesus. But Peter says, but though you have not seen him, you also love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. This is for you, too, to taste and see. So again, Peter is building up this word to tell us that there is a new life, and with a new life comes a new longing. We are born again to a new life, a living hope, and therefore we have new cravings, a new longing for the word of God and all the things pertaining to God. And as we long for more pure word, the more the old gets crowded out. I don't know if I shared this illustration with you before, but I used to live in the city for many years. When I first came from Philadelphia to Chicago, and after staying a year with my cousin, I was ready to kind of move near the church building. And three young 20-somethings said, Pastor Robin, we want to live with you. And I said, okay, that's a good idea. It's not a good idea, but uh, some of them were still in college, and I, I gave them all the confidence, okay, pick apartment, and we'll, we'll just go with that. I, I don't need much, and that you shouldn't do that, and so when I arrived on that day, my jaw dropped. My room was the size of like a closet, and I was like, how could you guys think that this could be livable? One of the other roommates had to climb up a ladder into a, uh, just an open space loft. And I was like, what are you guys doing? But I was like, hey, I got to show some humility there and not complain and be content. But I had to make a decision. I don't have a lot of space here. Only the most essential things in the room can stay. And everything else has to go. So a tiny, tiny bed, a tiny, tiny desk, a lamp, and that was pretty much it. I didn't have room for other non-essential things. The point is, when we focus on what the Bible calls us to include in the godly new pursuits and affections of the heart, all the other things must get crowded out. I like that illustration because it helps me to think, okay, it's not just a checklist of, I got to just... Don't do all those things like I did before and do all the, the better things now. But instead, when you flood your heart with the gospel, when you flood your heart with tasting that the Lord is kind and gracious to you and you feed on that every day and you feed on that perpetually, oh, the old will just get pushed out. 
And so as I told you many times growing up in a legalistic pattern, there was no joy in pursuing the new and throwing off the old because it was just an earning kind of meriting system. And I always just felt bad about myself and not good enough. But what the Bible is saying here is when we trust in Christ and the gospel and love his word and are minded of these spiritual truths, all the old will be pushed out. And you'll say, yes, God, there is no room for malice and envy and slander and the lusts of the flesh any longer. Oh, remind me to taste of Christ and his kindness. And when I neglect the word in my life, I'll be the first to admit this, the more the old flesh, the old man cries out for my heart to sin, to envy, to rebel, to be tempted to hypocrisy. And I know full well that I can't put away the old without the word of God in my life and of course through the aid and power of the Holy Spirit in me, a new life and a new longing. Now to our second heading, verses 4 through 8, a rejected but perfect cornerstone. A rejected but perfect cornerstone. I'm not going to reread these verses, so just scan through that text with your own eyes. The word stone there in verse 4, 6, 7, and 8 are all references from Psalm 118, Isaiah 8, and Isaiah 28. Some of the passages that we read earlier in the service. What was prophesied was that a stone would come and be a stumbling block to those that do not believe. And that stone would become the precious cornerstone to set the foundation of the church, spoken also about in Ephesians chapter 2. And of course, Christ referred to himself in Matthew 21 verse 42 as fulfilling this prophecy of the stone rejected. And of course, he was rejected by most of the Jewish leaders at that time, most of the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They stumbled, they tripped over, as verse 8 says, because they disobeyed the word as reprobates, as those who would remain in their fallenness and sin, as the wording they're destined to not believe. They did not regard the word and prophecy to be fulfilled by a carpenter from the northern region purporting to be the son of God who would have to die on a cross for sins so the Messiah and to see the Messiah to die on a cross that was ludicrous to most of them and they would gladly reject this Jesus because of this notion even the early disciples if you read some of the narratives in the gospel they wanted to establish a kingdom right there and now a political one an ethnic one and one day said, when Jesus said, I have to die, Peter himself, the author of this epistle, said, may that never be. Because he couldn't understand yet the stone needing to be rejected, but becoming the cornerstone. What is a cornerstone? Historians all note, I, lo I, I loved learning about this years ago. In the ancient context, builders would spend a, a lot of time, a careful amount of time, looking for that first stone, a perfect stone, to be placed in the corner of a new building structure and project. The shape had to be perfect because all the other stones subsequent to that would be shaped directionally from this first cornerstone. And so therefore the rest of the foundation could then be laid. 
Paul says in Ephesians 2 then that Christ is also the cornerstone of the church and the laid foundation of the church is the gospel that is spoken about from the prophets and the apostles. But Christ is who shapes and lays the remaining groundwork for the existence and sustenance of the church. And as the metaphor alludes to, if your foundation is off, even slightly, the whole building is off and likely to come crashing down. So I don't say this in any humor or, or judgment, but the many churches, even in America, in today's day and age, where when they try to move away from Christ as the cornerstone and the foundation of the gospel, they might grow into thousands of people, they might get a celebrity preacher on TV, but eventually and sadly you see the downturn and the downfall of a church that has abandoned Christ and has abandoned his gospel. And so Peter builds off of that picture of Christ as the perfect cornerstone, as Paul does, that believers are now being added to this growing spiritual structure. I think that's wonderful. Who knows when the Lord will return again? Could it be hundreds of years, thousands of years? And to know, church, way after we die and leave this place, that more and more people, unless the Lord returns, sooner rather than later, but more and more people will be added to the spiritual structure. Peter, though, uses the language of believers being living stones, stones that are living because of our un- uh, being in union with Christ. His death and resurrection with the spiritual house, verse 5, Westminster Presbyterian Church is not a church because we have a building or a sign outside outside our structure that says we are. We are church because we are part of the spiritual building, the spiritual house of God. And notice in verse five that we are called a holy priesthood. What does that mean? Well, back in the Old Testament, in the actual physical temple, there were priests there all the time making sacrifices every day, animal blood sacrifice for for people's sins and all these other forms of rebellion. They had to keep making sacrifices. But that's no longer needed because of Christ's finished work on the cross. The New Testament continues to share these truths. Even in 1 Peter, that his perfect blood was shed for us. And so therefore, in verse 5, just as Romans 12 verse 1 says, we continue to make spiritual sacrifices now, not blood sacrifices anymore, as that was fulfilled once and for all in Christ, but spiritual sacrifices with the giving up of our whole lives unto him. And I just did a quick scan in the New Testament of all the context here. Spiritual sacrifices isn't just one category. Philippians 4, when they were giving uh, monetary gifts, Paul called that as a fragrant offering acceptable through Christ. That was a spiritual sacrifice. But then in Revelation 8, even the prayers of the saints offered up along with the incense rises up to God. So the priesthood of all believers does not entail everyone's a priest in the Levitical sense or everyone is a pastor, but everyone has access to God like the priest used to have. Everyone can offer up spiritual sacrifices to the Lord. Why? Because of the precious living stone. This living stone equals Christ because he has been raised and resurrected from the dead. And I think we can all be encouraged by this truth, and I get encouraged every time I remember 
Actually, every time I, I think about getting up here to lead worship and to preach or to lead the liturgy, to just remind myself before I remind you all that I have access to the Father not because I had a good week or not, but because of Christ's finished work. And then when we leave this place and you have a devotional this week, or when you're driving in your car to work, or you have a moment where the, the kids aren't you know, bothering you for all your time, to say, God, can I approach you now? And you remember, oh yes, I can, because of the priesthood of all believers. I have access because of the true priest, the high priest, Jesus Christ, representing me in heaven. Was this finished work of Christ believed by all? By no means. They reject the stone. Oh, and they will continue to reject the stone to their demise as they disobey what the word plainly says about the Savior. And if you're watching on the stream this morning or here with us today in person, and you look back at your life and said, I'm probably in that category. I've rejected the stone. I've rejected Christ my whole life, but now I sense a drawing, the kindness of his Holy Spirit to draw near to him. I encourage you to turn then. It's never too late. Turn and repent from that life of rejection and rebellion and simply trust and believe in him. Call upon his name, the word says, and be saved. For yes, it is never too late, nor any sin too heinous for God not to redeem us and forgive us and call us his own. And to be also, as an encouragement, part of the ongoing building up of a spiritual house to the Lord, the spiritual holy temple, where Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 is where God dwells among his people by the Spirit. Praise God indeed. Back then, it was the, the high priest once a year to go into the most holy place to see symbolically the presence of God there. For us, God dwells in his church by his spirit. And this is why, this is what drives me so much in our individual conversations for the last five or six months, why I care so much about outreach and evangelism and about Elgin in this region is because we want to see more and more people added to the spiritual house of God, to taste and see that he is good. So we've been through the two headings, a new life, a new longing. Number two, a rejected but perfect cornerstone. And finally, number three, a holy nation in exile, verses 9 through 12. A holy nation in exile. Notice Peter uses priesthood again in this passage, if you could just scan that text there. But this time with the word royal. We serve the royal king, who also was a high priest in the order of Melchizedek, Hebrews chapter 7. Melchizedek being that mysterious figure in Genesis 14 where he blessed Abraham on his journey. Melchizedek, literally meaning king of righteousness, was both a priest but also a king. And of course, Jesus fulfilled the three roles in the Old Testament of prophet, priest, and king and as our king, but also as our high priest, Hebrews 7 says, we are his royal priesthood in our union with him, as it says in today's text. But not only that, a chosen race, Peter calls us. Not constrained by ethnicity, but a chosen race. A holy nation, not contained by any geographical boundaries or borders. 
and a people that are for his own possession. For what purpose? Verse 9, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. As one author illustrates, when you close all the curtains at night and you don't allow a single bit of light to come in and you feel the darkness surround you and then you turn on the light, it doesn't just take several seconds or a minute. The light immediately drives out the darkness in its illumination. And this is what happens in our regeneration, brothers and sisters, our being spiritually born again. You are no longer children of darkness but children of light immediately. Not, let's see how you do the first three to five years, but immediately, that is the status change, out of darkness, but now children of light, objects of wrath, but now recipients of mercy. So what do we do with this amazing truth? We proclaim, Peter says, the excellencies of him by speaking with joy about the gospel and what he has done. But as he closes this portion in verses 11 through 12, Peter also reminds us there's a new pattern also as exiles. We abstain from the lusts of the passions of the flesh. This is not just a sexual immorality reference, but the war that is waged against your soul every day against all the passions and lusts of the flesh. Sinclair Ferguson uses this illustration that although the war has already been won in Christ's victory, amen to that, Ferguson reminds us that we still fight every day through the battles against our enemy and against our own flesh. And as that final battle will be played out, we will emerge victorious because of what Christ has done. But when we look down, we'll be covered in blood-stained clothes and armor. The battles are to be fought even though the war has already been won. And as sojourners and exiles, those in temporary holding patterns till we get to heaven, we need to abstain with all effort against the flesh and conduct ourselves honorably before a watching world so that some may come to know Christ and glorify him on that last day of visitation. But don't take it for granted. We are his possession. The war has been won. And we have full assurance that he will bring his people to final salvation in his coming day, in, in that coming day that he will preserve us to the very end. And I think as we think about battling our old flesh and all the toils and the various trials, as it says in chapter 1, and you might be tempted to despair. Oh, be encouraged, brothers and sisters, that he will preserve us until the very end. And so today's passage reminded us with applications littered throughout that we've been bought at a price to, number one, a new life, a new longing. We learned that Christ was, number two, a rejected but perfect cornerstone. And then finally, number three, that we are to live in this world as a holy nation in exile, representing Christ and his will and purposes while waging war against our flesh and proclaiming praise to the king. How glorious and marvelous indeed. Let's bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your one and only Son to be the perfect living stone so that through him, as our one cornerstone, we could become a holy people, a royal priesthood, 
who offer up spiritual sacrifices to you and as a holy nation, a people for your own possession. Oh, Father, help us to put away the old for good, all the malice, rebellion, deceit, envy, hypocrisy, and slander, and crave and long for the pure word of you, God, that directs our attention and new affections on things above. But as 1 John reminds us, if we do sin, help us to confess them, and you are faithful, O oh God, to forgive us of all our unrighteousness. So, Lord, we endeavor to participate this way by the working out our salvation with fear and trembling, as Philippians 2 reminds us, by the power of your Holy Spirit in us that brings us in union to the Son. And may we proclaim the excellencies of you, Almighty God. Oh, we pray confidently because of the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.